Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Don't Buy Her Flowers podcast. I'm Steph and I'm recording this looking out on a sunny garden. Beautiful blue skies. Um, the garden is, of course, strewn with kids' tat, broken bats, bits of Lego. I don't know why they take Lego into the garden, but it is sunny. Um, and we planted some primroses that Frank insisted we buy in the garden centre a few weeks ago. And they've survived. And I literally kill all plants. So this is good. Um, maybe this is it. This is, maybe this is where I, this is the summer that I shine with my garden. I don't think it is. But anyway, uh, let's get to it. Um, today's guests are talking with me about dying. Anna Lyons is an end-of-life doula and Louise Winter is a funeral director. Uh, their experience and interaction with death and dying is way beyond anything that I or your average person has. And they've built a community on Instagram under the name Life, Death, Whatever, as well as um, written a book. We all know how this ends. But their mission is to get more people talking about dying and death so that we're not so full of fear and kind of unprepared, I think, of something that is definitely going to happen to all of us. Um, it's been one of those mornings where we've had an ongoing saga with foxes getting into the rubbish and two of the kids aren't feeling 100% and there's just loads of work to do. And Anna and Louise talk about their biggest learning, which is actually about living and life through all they've learned about dying. So it was a really good reminder for me among the chaos. I think sometimes we need an external reminder about what's important maybe when we're kind of feeling that overwhelm. So I hope that um, you find the same and I hope you really enjoy this episode. Okay, I wanted to start with talking to you about your book. So you've written We All Know How This Ends and it's lessons about life and living from working with death and dying. Your paperback is out on the 26th of May and it will be in Don't Buy Her Flowers packages, which is really exciting. And it's so good and life affirming. And I think probably very much not what somebody would expect from a book that was primarily about death. So I've, I wanted to ask you both, you both work in death and dying. So I wanted to start with what each of your jobs. Anna, do you want to start? I'm an end of life doula. That basically means, well, doula is from the Greek word servant. And most people have heard of birth doulas, but not that many people have heard of end of life doulas. And we support emotionally and practically people who are living with life limiting illness we also support their friends and their family 
and I do a lot of grief work afterwards after somebody's died and sometimes I don't ever work with the person who's unwell I just work to support the friends and family so that they can be there to support their person okay wow how do you get into that (laughs) um my best friend died when I was 17 and I decided pretty much there and then that I wanted to work with people at the end of their lives to try to make it as all right as possible and so I've basically been working towards this since then amazing and it's like a calling really it's like I think so it definitely feels like it's what I'm supposed to do Mm. it sometimes feels like it would have been a lot easier to be a hairdresser or a lawyer my dad (laughs) wanted me to be a lawyer very disappointed in me well I guess it's definitely work that you must take home with you right you can't switch off from it's very very difficult to and I've been working at end of life in hospice and in various different settings since 2001 wow so 21 years and I I'm much, much more careful sort of how much I take on because I'm a single mum with three girls mm. and I've realised that I am very human and can't do everything. So I refer lots of people to other people. I admit and acknowledge that I'm not always the right person for the job. I'm very aware of my limitations now, much more than I was years and years ago. But it is, it's very difficult not to take it home. And it's really important to have, I have supervision and therapy so that I can sort of hand it over a little bit as well. Yeah. And how about you, Louise? Because you are a funeral director. People can't see you, but you are a young lady with wicked hair and not what (laughs) I expect a funeral director to look like, which is the point, I guess. Oh, definitely. No, I I definitely don't fit the stereotypes of being a funeral director. People always say to me, did you inherit the business? Or, Mm. oh, you're you're family? Are you from a long line of funeral directors? And absolutely not. No one in my family is a funeral director. And I definitely, unfortunately, actually did not inherit the business. It would have been a lot easier, I think, if I had. I've had to set up right from the beginning. So, as a, I might call it a modern funeral director or a more contemporary funeral director, a progressive funeral director. There are lots of different words that I use to describe the approach that I take. Um, but I work with people to put together a funeral which hopefully works for them and serves them in their grief. Sometimes that's very simple. Sometimes it's very complex and very creative. It all depends on what's right for the family and friends of the person who has died. Mm. Do people often have made those decisions before they die or is it left with, I guess it must vary, but the people who are left behind? It's very mixed. Sometimes Mm. someone will approach us and say that they are facing the end of their life and they want to plan their funeral. Um, Sometimes they'll involve their family and friends in those conversations. Sometimes they just want to do it completely on their terms and not involve anyone. But most of the time people haven't thought about it. Mm. And it's over to the family and friends to put together a funeral which works for them. And it's quite complicated. What's helpful for someone isn't helpful for the next person. A lot of it depends on religious beliefs, the community that someone is from, the culture that they've been brought up in, what their expectations are, pressure from other family members, often elderly relatives that may get involved and have very 
prescriptive ideas of what the funeral should be. Mm. But I think what I've picked up over the years is that a good funeral is about the person that has died, but it's for the people who survived them. So I very much planned my funeral when I first started doing this work and I actually ended up tearing it up because I decided that what I want is not really that relevant. I've got some ideas as guidance, Mm. but really if I die imminently, then I need the funeral to serve the people who will be grieving me rather than it being sort of an an opportunity to have a incredibly stylish party or, or, you know, it's not an opportunity for my ego. It's um, a funeral needs to be genuinely helpful and serve people in their grief. And I think that's what I've, I've really learned over the years. And how did you both end up working together? It was thanks to Twitter, actually. We met on Twitter. Oh, wow. Um, I was looking for people. This was at the very beginning of my journey into funerals. Um, I was looking for people who wanted to think about their funeral in advance. And Anna stepped forward. Um, I went to see her in London. And we became friends and ended up... I don't think we've actually finished planning your funeral, Anna. No, (laughs) we haven't. Years later, (laughs) uh, because we got a bit sidetracked with thinking about how death and dying need to become part of everyday conversation and running festivals and writing a book and Instagram accounts. Um, So it's all thanks to Twitter. You created Life, Death, Whatever, which you obviously have a website and it lives on Instagram and there's loads of information there and you're building a real community but I guess your main sort of drive with your manifesto is to get people to talk about death more. Yeah we started off our kind of our tagline was redesigning the dialogue around death and dying Mm. and ultimately what we really wanted was just to bring it into normal everyday conversation we wanted people to start talking. It's such a strange thing that it is so hidden and not discussed when obviously it's the one thing that we all know is going to happen but in your manifesto you you list a few things well you list a, a load of things that are your kind of your again your drivers and I thought a really interesting one that comes up is about death not being failure do you want to talk about that it's really difficult because the medical profession it's all about curative medicine mm. it's about making people better and so When you encounter doctors that don't work in palliative care or end-of-life care, they can sometimes feel that they have really failed. And I think unconsciously that can often be projected onto the person who's done well as well. And it can feel like you failed because we use all these combative words around death when we talk about somebody having lost their battle. Mm. How can you not attribute failure to that when actually it's not about losing a battle? I think we have to remove all of those words. I think if people ascribe it to their own journey, so if somebody is unwell and they describe themselves as battling their illness, that's something completely different. But I think it does a real disservice to somebody when we say they lost their battle. Mm. Um, and I think that perpetuates this myth that death is a failure we didn't live properly we didn't look after ourselves well enough our doctors didn't find enough ways to keep us alive they failed we failed it's Mm. not a failure it's a natural normal part of life it's something that is going to happen to all of us regardless and 
what difference do you think it could make to us if we did talk about death more? We live very differently if we acknowledge that life is finite. Mm. I think when somebody intrinsic to us dies, if we haven't thought about what death means to us, if we haven't ever encountered anything like that or spoken to anyone else that's grieving, it can feel so strange and so difficult and so lonely. And I think by not talking about it, we make everybody's lives harder. There's a quote in the book, it's Peter Bromberg. It applies to so many different things, but it says, um, when we avoid difficult conversations, we trade short-term discomfort for long-term dysfunction. Yeah. And it's that ripping off the plaster thing, isn't it? It's like, well, once you, we all know, generally speaking, that once you have those awkward conversations, there's a relief and it feels better. And then you have that connect, human connection, which is so critical. But we kind of bury it, for want of a better and it, word. And it gets easier. I think talking about death and dying when you are unwell is incredibly hard mm. because it means something different. Talking about it as part of every day, it's actually quite interesting. I talk to my kids about it a lot and they're just fascinated. They mm. find it so interesting. I think PSHE was made mandatory a while ago, but only for sex and relationships. And I think it's so important that we bring into that death, dying and grief. It doesn't have to be a difficult conversation. It can just be, you know, pondering something, thinking about what it might be like, thinking about how we feel about it. When you're unwell and you're talking about it or thinking about it, it's so loaded, it's so different. And I, I do think we do ourselves a disservice by not allowing it to be part of a conversation that we would just have with people. I've read in the book that in every classroom there'll be a child who's been bereaved. At least at least one child will have yeah. lost a parent, yep. And I suppose if you can have those conversations, then everyone's better equipped to know how to handle that. I remember really vividly when I was at school, a girl, I think he was like a couple of years younger than me, her dad died and he would have been probably in his 40s, so very young, and we were outside the school gates. Um, my mum saw his partner and my mum went and asked her if she was okay. And they both started crying. And I was like, oh, God, this is so embarrassing. My mum's so embarrassing. And then when mum came back, she said, well, I asked her if she was okay. And she said, no one's asked me. And it was like probably a week or two in and the kids are back at school. But everyone was avoiding her because no yeah. one knew what to say. And I just remember it so well because they just were both crying and holding on to each other. My mum, it wasn't someone that my mum particularly knew, but my mum was a midwife and a nurse and she is really comfortable with death. Like she has this book called I'm Dead, Now What? And it's this massive thing. I think you guys would both be big fans of it. I saw it on the side at her house and was like, what's going on? And it's all for putting in your, it's got like, information about belongings and business affairs and wishes and stuff like that and my initial reaction was like oh god mum but then she kind of just showed it to me and la we laughed about it and she's quite glib about it but it took a huge inability to discuss it away how would you advise people to broach it with their kids that's really tricky I, I suppose you have to be comfortable with it if you've never spoken about it before, I would definitely practice on your friends before your kids. Mm. But one of the ways that 
it's really difficult for me because it's been a part of my life for so long and I I had my first daughter when I was very young and we've always talked about it but one of the things that we do is that we discuss what color they want their coffin to be painted because right. when when my granddad died my youngest was very small she was about 4 and I was going to choose his coffin and there were just so many coffins and they were so expensive and he hated waste and he hated spending money on things that he didn't see any value in and so I chose the cheapest coffin and I painted his coffin the same colour that he'd painted his walls. He'd got this job lot of kind of <laughs> turquoise blue from b years and years ago. And every time a wall needed painting in his house, he painted it that blue. He painted his shoes that blue and his cap when it was looking a bit tired. So <laughs> I decided to paint his coffin this blue and my daughter helped me. Oh, and wow. they bought, they very ceremoniously bought his coffin to his house and put it in the garage where he'd painted everything. And we sat there and we painted it together. And actually just the act of doing it opened up all of these conversations about mm. what, what it meant to be dead. And so that has been a kind of running theme in our family. Everyone talks about what colour they want their coffin painted. And my youngest daughter is obsessed with the idea of who is going to paint her coffin because she assumes that all of us will be dead by the time she dies because she's the youngest. Mm. And so she wants to know who's going to paint hers. And she still ponders that question, but every so often they will have changed their colour or they'll yes. decide that you know they want unicorns and sparkles <laughs> instead of purple. Um, and they update me on what they want. But also I, I sometimes come home and I'm really sad and they'll say, are you OK? And I'll say that somebody's died or it's been a really tricky day. Um, and that also opens up conversations. I think if you try not to hide your feelings from your kids, if you let them know why you're sad and what you're sad about, that's a really good conversation starter. Mm. I think we're so obsessed with painting on a barmaid smile and pretending that our lives are brilliant and wonderful in front of our children and actually a really good way to start talking about things that are important is just to say, I don't actually feel that great today and this is why. And something probably we didn't have so much from our parents. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it is changing the conversation? Um, I think I exist in a bubble where people talk about it. I think mm. our Instagram account, we follow lots of grief accounts, lots of people who will talk about death and dying. I'm not sure it's changing as much as I would like it to. I'm hoping that the book is a good starting point. I think mm. one of the big problems with the COVID daily death tolls is that it was so overwhelming, so enormous, you couldn't actually get your head around it. And I think it's, instead of encouraging people to talk about it, I think it shut people down a little bit. With COVID, I mean, that must have impacted you both massively with your work. What, Louise, what did that mean for you? Because managing funerals must have been a huge challenge. It really was. And we're so used to having people or encouraging people to be really engaged with the process of arranging the funeral and 
getting involved and being very hands-on and we just couldn't do that overnight all of that had to stop we went from saying yes to most things to having to say I'm really sorry but we cannot do that right now and faced with huge numbers of people who had died people very scared and restrictions on funerals I think that was one of the most difficult things particularly during the first lockdown Mm. only 10 people were allowed to attend funerals so that was immediate friends and family only the funerals tended to be very short and we had to try and find ways creative ways of bringing people together whilst keeping them apart so everyone could stay safe a lot of things went online the crematoria had to adapt pretty much overnight a lot of them had been very slow at embracing technology and overnight they all had to embrace technology and install webcasts and actually learn how to use them because most of the attendees were suddenly virtual some funerals nobody attended at all and we would attend on behalf of the family Um, there were really heartbreaking situations where at the end of the funeral the widow would go home alone because we couldn't have wakes at that time people couldn't come together they were literally standing apart in the car park just saying goodbye and then going home alone Um, so it was really tough it was a really challenging time it was incredibly busy my team worked non-stop throughout Mm. both waves of covid And we weren't able to offer the service that, you know, we have come to understand is really helpful Mm. um, for people who are grieving. We had to offer a compromised version of that. It was a very scary time. Yeah. Did it, if anything, sort of strengthen your views of what you both do, I guess, given that you couldn't do it? And presumably you could see the fallout of that was people didn't have that process and that time and that connection and all those things. What really surprised me was how adamant people were that they wanted to have a funeral, even when it was really compromised, it was down to very limited attendance, it was still really important to people to find a way to show up. Right. Because this could have been an opportunity for as a society for us to just dismiss funerals completely, um, to go to what's called direct cremation when people are just cremated with no service, no one attending, um, that has become increasingly popular. Um, in recent years but that didn't happen people really wanted to show up even if it meant you know sending an old school friend who had known their their mum who died because they were the only person that was available to attend and could do so safely people became really creative with how they approached the funeral because it was just so important to honour the person that had died and to find a way to say goodbye to them. So that's what really surprised me about how funerals were really, really important and people did not want to get rid of them. No. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And I guess a lot of people listening might be in this stage that we talk about, this kind of rush hour where you're a certain age and there's lots going on and one where pet our parents if they are still alive are older and how do we prepare ourselves so I think the most important thing we can do is is talk about it openly and I know that's really challenging you know I've written a book about this but I don't necessarily have um the most open dialogue with <laughs> at least I talk to my mum about it but definitely my dad finds it very challenging to talk about but over the Easter weekend, I was um, I was with my parents and my grandma was around and we were driving around, going to the garden centre and having tea and cake and various things. And we had a really gentle introduction to a conversation um, about what she would want for her funeral. Mm. A new natural burial ground has opened near to where they all live. Um, and we happened to be driving past it, so we stopped. Um, and we had a look round and commented on the flowers and talked about how there's a pub next door and how that's a bit challenging because it's supposed to be a quiet cemetery and what did we think about the fact that all these people outside having pints were sitting with their dogs um when there's a natural burial ground and I thought it was really lovely um and I just slipped into the conversation grandma is this where you would like to be and she said oh no no absolutely not don't bring me here um I want to be in the garden with with granddad and my mum just sort of looked at me and winked because it it was just a really gentle way of introducing that conversation mm. without it having to be okay we all need to sit around the kitchen table now and have this awful conversation about what's going to happen when grandma dies um and what her funeral is going to be it was just part of talking about the surroundings and talking about that particular pub and the beautiful views over the valley um and seeing that someone had been buried there recently and looking at the flowers and because it was a natural burial ground they were more natural so mm. it, these conversations don't have to be alienating and awful a really easy way to introduce the conversation is to talk about music and oh my god i really want this song to be played at my funeral or oh someone had um eminem playing at their funeral the other day that that kind of thing because that's an easier way into the conversation rather as I said anything that makes it very formal and alienating is not helpful but just slowly and gently introducing it I think is the way forward I suppose it's doing it sooner so you're not doing it when someone actually is necessarily dying if you've had some sort of conversation about it before that point it's going to be a lot easier because I guess 
everyone's trying very hard not to upset the person who is dying right yeah it as Anna said earlier it is really difficult to have those conversations when you're facing the situation if you've had them years before and it's just very much a casual topic of conversation then it's much easier to face whatever you're going through I worked with a lady earlier this year whose husband was facing the end of his life and she wanted to be really prepared so I went along to meet with her. I met with her husband. They chose a celebrant. The celebrant worked with them to put together the funeral. We met the children who were going to be involved. So everyone was very prepared about what was going to happen when Mm. the day eventually came. And her name is Dee. She's spoken really, really profound how amazing that she found that experience of just preparing herself, knowing who she was going to call what it might be like at the end of his life, how difficult it might be because of the the illness that he had and the end could be quite traumatic and, and it was. And knowing who the funeral director was going to be and I, I would come out at any time of the night and we would take time and be gentle and where he was going to go and how he was going to be taken care of. And, and she found that really helpful. And I think because she involved the rest of her family and her husband who was dying in that conversation as well, mm-hmm. it meant that they were all on the same page and they all felt prepared my dad was a vicar and Mm -hmm. I can remember walking past his office and I don't know if you remember the song the bluebells young at heart and it's like a really upbeat young at heart and walking Mm -hmm. past his office and be like dad what are you listening to because that wasn't his kind of music but it was someone had requested that and it was someone in their 80s um that's Mm -hmm. what they were having at their funeral so I think he was just finding the track That must be so varied. Oh, it's so varied. The other day, we were at the crematorium and the previous funeral left to Barbie Girl by (laughs) Atta. So really, it goes back to that there are no rules. You can do whatever you like. You don't have to sort of have, you know, three pieces of very sedate music and a hymn. It's a funeral that's supposed to honour the person that has died and you can have whatever you like. And you talk in the book about out-of-order death. Um, So obviously we talked about kind of parents dying. So when someone, I guess that's where someone dies who is younger, who isn't expected to die first. And what can people do better to support people? Because again, that feels like something that's a lot of unspoken comes into that. I'm thinking of Elle from Feathering the Empty Nest. And in her book, she wrote about how people would avoid her because they didn't know what to say after her baby died. What would you say about how people can help, Anna? I think people just need to show up. You know, you need to acknowledge what's happened. You need to say it out loud. Be prepared to have really uncomfortable conversations. In the doulering world, there's a phrase, bearing witness to someone's pain. Sometimes it is just sitting with somebody, acknowledging how shit the situation is, how absolutely awful and unbearable it is Mm. and being in that with them I've worked a lot with out of order death Mm. and people generally and it's important to ask them it's important to say you know how can I support you what can I do give them the opportunity to let you know I think there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know how to support you but I want to is there anything that would be helpful or ask other people you know look it up (laughs) do some research Mm. go in being a bit prepared but people have said things like how important it is to acknowledge 
that somebody's died, how important it is to hear their name. Hearing that they made an impact on your life as well can be really, really soothing for people to know that the person that they love, the person that's missing from their lives, had an impact outside of their family. So really, it's just about showing up and being prepared to be uncomfortable. Yeah. People often say, oh, I didn't want to say anything because I might make them cry. Yeah. You know, it is such a daft way of thinking, but it's also very human, isn't it? Mm. It's that kind of, I don't want to make anything worse. I think a lot of the time people don't say anything because they don't genuinely don't want to make anything worse. They don't mm. want to say the wrong thing. So it's somehow easier not to say anything at all. And what we try to say is it's so much better to say something. Mm. I think our understanding of psychology and humans has changed quite significantly over the last 50 years to the point that we do know that, that yeah. it is going to be better to acknowledge it. Um, and again, it's that ripping off the plaster because you probably will feel awkward or worry about saying something wrong and then it will be OK or it will connect you with that person. Yeah, that awkwardness is not going to kill you. That awkwardness is just a feeling and it will pass. And actually the difference that it makes to somebody that you've acknowledged what they're living with mm. is enormous. It's worth every bit of how awkward you feel about it. Well, yeah, because I guess as well as grief, if no one's talking to them or they can tell someone's avoiding them, there's also a horrible loneliness, which they're going to feel anyway, yeah. right? And a secondary loss. You know, so mm. many so many people who are grieving talk about the secondary losses of losing their friends, losing people who they thought would be there to support them, who just disappear because they don't know how to cope with it. Mm. And I suppose a lot of people who are listening might not have experienced someone dying or they might be reassured if they have to hear what it's like, like some of the commonalities of what happens. Because I guess you say in the book that movies get it really wrong. Things like someone declaring their love or those last words and how unlikely that is to happen when someone's actually dying. Yeah, I think so. People often die as they've lived. If you were never somebody to express your feelings or to tell people how much you love them and how much you care about them in your life, you're very, very unlikely to do that at the end. Mm. People's personalities when they're unwell tend to, they become more of themselves as opposed to, I think we, we have this idea that we want, because we've seen it in the movies, we want that moment at the end mm. where you're holding on to each other and you're telling telling each other how important you are. When in reality, most people slip into unconsciousness a long time before they die. Mm. In a sort of a normal death situation, it takes a lot longer to die than people think often. Mm. In the way that giving birth is a journey and every single birth is different and labours can be minutes or days, death is the dying process. I don't ever describe somebody who is living with illness as dying because the dying process is very short. It's right at the end. Mm. It's so different for everybody. And how it's experienced by the people supporting the person who is dying is completely different for everybody too. 
So because I've been with lots of people when they've died, I might experience it in a completely different way to you. And it might be hugely traumatising for you, whereas I might see it as really quite gentle. Mm-hmm. It's, I think one of the things um, we spoke with Stacey Heal and she mentioned about her husband, Greg, detaching emotionally. Yeah. And I thought that was because if you are waiting for this these big last moments, especially if someone's been unwell for a really long time, so you've kind of probably imagined it and gone through all that in your head, they might just not happen. And I suppose it, that reminds us to have those conversations just in life rather than waiting for something. Yeah, in in the same way that people are afraid to say to people who are grieving, are you OK? <laughs> or, or talk about the person who's died. Very often, carers and the people closest to somebody who is very, very unwell find it really, really hard to say how they're feeling because... So much emphasis is put on the person who is unwell and their mental health and taking care of them. That I think sometimes as carers, we forget that how we feel is important too. And there's nothing wrong with you trying to have that conversation rather than expecting the person who's unwell to have it. Because Mm. detaching emotionally is a very, very normal part of the process. Mm. it's so difficult to especially when you're young to watch your world ebbing away knowing that it's going to continue knowing that other people are going to watch your children grow up knowing Mm. that the life that you love the life that you have given everything for it is is leaving you and there's nothing you can do about it so people do often can often detach Mm. and that there's something that you guys do with the unsaid hashtag and that is really powerful but it's also funny these are things that people after someone has died they're kind of their unsaid things and someone said um your cooking was fucking dreadful (laughs) that's my favorite (laughs) it's punchy um but in some of them uh, it was me who pooped in penn's swimming pool in the deep end in 1989 like there's (laughs) but there's some that are really emotional as well like i wish you'd done this or i wish you'd said that and that lives on the website right yeah and there's an all that's left unsaid instagram It's actually my favourite project of ours and because it's anonymous or it can be, some some people choose to put their name on it, but because it's anonymous there's a real sense that you can say whatever you want and and people do. Mm. And what's the biggest learning that each of you has from your work and and how has it impacted how you live? I think for me it's something that's both simultaneously very simple and also very complex that's that life is very short Mm. but life is also very long (laughs) so living the best possible life it just sounds like the kind of thing that would be on a cushion but actually when faced with mortality every single day it becomes very true and I can see over the years how I've made different decisions because of the experiences I've had through work Mm. and seeing other people um, and going through all sorts of tragic and awful things. It's made me reconsider friendships and who I am and what I value and my own relationship with my family, for example, and 
intimate relationships and what I'm looking for in a partner, all of that has been really impacted by being exposed to other people's funerals. And I think it all just comes down to not taking anything for granted because one day it could all be over. This could be the last time. Mm. How about you, Anna? I always think my friend Kim, Kimberly St. John, she was a palliative care nurse and she died very, very suddenly and unexpectedly in July last year. Mm. And she wrote five things for us while she was working as a palliative care nurse. Lots of the things that she says have stuck in my head, but one of them is that she talked about this sort of morbid gratitude of things and she would be running up the stairs and she would think isn't this incredible that I can run up the stairs that I've got legs that I'm alive and they can get me up the stairs Mm. and when she died it was so shocking and it was so unbelievable that this absolutely incredible vibrant young woman at the beginning of her life was no longer there and I Every single day I walk my youngest daughter to school and she takes my hand and I'm so grateful that she reaches her hand out to mine and I hold it and I am so incredibly grateful that I get to do that. I don't think I make any different decisions anymore. I think I probably did in the beginning. I don't have the luxury of being able to do that anymore. I've got way too many responsibilities to run off and do all of the things that I might like to do. But it is that her reaching out and holding my hand and me knowing that there is a time limit on it. There, there is going to be an end when that little hand doesn't reach for mine and that little hand isn't going to be little anymore. But I am hugely grateful for the life that I have. Mm. And I think that is because I'm so aware that it can be taken away that it is taken away from us yeah everyone has those moments where you get that perspective but for you guys you have daily reminders which is a big thing to probably take on but also yeah really enriching well thank you so much i can i especially that list about living i think that's one i'm gonna keep going back to when it all does get a bit overwhelming and you're kind of like oh god this is really hard actually there's some good reminders in there oh thank you thank you for having us thank you so much for listening and thank you to anna and louise as well um what they said really made me think about difficult conversations and that that idea of short-term discomfort for long-term gain and connection with other people um yeah, I think that was a big, big thing for me to think about. Um, we've got a couple of really juicy episodes coming up, one on sex and another on relationships um, and marriage. So definitely subscribe and you'll get a ping when those go live. Um, and please let us know any feedback by rating and reviewing the podcast. And also feel free to drop me a line at podcast at don'tbuyherflowers.com. And if that includes information about how to keep foxes away from your stuff, I didn't even mention they chewed up a pair of Frank's shoes the other day that we stupidly left outside and they were only like a week old <sighs> so yeah anything to get rid of foxes please well not get rid of them i don't want to cull them but just not encourage them we seem to be encouraging them into our space anyway there you go thank you so much and i hope you have a good week Ever 
catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.